0: Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Brian Fairchild, a former CIA case officer with nearly two decades of experience who operated in the shadows under official and non-official cover across the planet. He has testified before Congress and imparted his counterterrorism expertise to over 10,000 professionals in the FBI, CIA, military personnel and police officers. Brian's journey also involves working directly with an Arabian ruler and serving as an advisor to Afghan national police officers during his 18-month assignment in Kabul. Drawing from his experience in the CIA, Brian authored the book, The Hidden, now uh, available for purchase, where he's he shed light on clandestine operations and intelligence matter, matters. His goal is to help educate the public about the existential problems we face from China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, and what they can do about it. Welcome to the podcast, Brian.
1: Thank you, Hervoya. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on, and you know your your background is uh, interesting, fascinating, a, b- a bit of a cold uh, warrior, maybe so mm-hmm. to speak. And you know, I grew up in the eighties and nineties on a steady diet of GI Joe's, Chuck Norris, All right. and Del- Delta Force, you know, uh, yeah, Ram- yeah. Rambo, Rambo, you 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 name it. Uh, and so, you know, be- before touching on some of these topics, uh, anything you'd like to uh, tell us about? Your background and the the work you've done over the many decades.
1: No, actually, I'm. Well, I mean, yeah, I uh, I can tell you. A lot of people ask me, "Well, how in the heck did you ever get interested in CIA?" You know, so so maybe I can start there if it's okay with you. When I was uh, I, I was about thirteen years old. I was in uh, Arizona, in Mesa, Arizona, dry desert, and I read. You know, talk about the power of the word and the power of a, of a novel. I read Jack London's uh, Call of the Wild. And as a kid, you know, growing up in a desert and reading about these adventures of this guy up in Alaska, it sort of captured my imagination. So that was the beginning of the journey. About a year later, you know, I'd I like I for for it to be sexier, but I, I went to the movies and I saw Sean Connery and James Bond's uh, uh from Russia with love. And man, I watched that movie and it just captured my imagination. Everything about it, you know, got me. I mean, it was filmed in Turkey. And so there's foreign, you know, foreigners everywhere. They were taking the underground, uh, you know, passages underneath uh, Istanbul to to spy on the Russians and all that sort of thing. And uh, and of course, her boy, uh, he got the girl, you know. So, so I, I, right at that time, I figured that's That's the job for me. So I started looking into it and I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I, I I really, once I get caught on by something, I just got to find out everything I can find out about it. So I went at the time, there were no computers and iPhones or anything. So I went to the Boulder public library. I lived in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And uh, when I went to that movie and so I searched the entire, you know, library and there was nothing for 14 year old spy wannabes. So the next thing I did was I, I decided, well, what else can I do? I'll write to CIA. So I wrote to CIA and I said, basically, you know, uh, dear CIA, I'd like to be a spy. Tell me how to do that, please. You know, regards Brian Fairchild. And they wrote back. And that's that's really the key of what I want to say right now is that people can can inspire you in many different ways and they don't often even know it. Right. So this guy, I get a uh, I get a letter and it's on my my mom puts it on my pillow when I uh, when I come home from school. And originally I thought, oh, man, it's uh, Mr. Fairchild and I'm in trouble because now the CIA is writing to my father and he's, you know, he's saying, hey, corral your son. You know, we're busy, man. We can't you know, be dealing with this sort of thing because the only Mr. Fairchild I'd ever known was my father. Right. So I opened it up and then I found out that when they said Mr. Fairchild, they were talking to me. And my self esteem just shot through the roof. But it but it wasn't just a, a, a form letter, her boy. Eh? I mean it was it was a, a plan, and it was written and this is great, you can't make this stuff up. It was written by a CIA case officer by the name of Michael Todorovich. Mikhail Todorovich. Now I just seen from Russia with Love, right? So I'm I'm used to the accents and stuff, and here I'm getting a letter from Michael Todorovich. And he gives me his plan. And he says, you know, and, and I want to say when I wrote the letter, it, I printed it in pencil in block letters. It wasn't a sophisticated thing. He could have easily just torn it up and thrown it away. But he answered it with a plan. And he said, well, Brian, it's great that young Americans like you are you know, showing an interest in the U.S. government and especially CIA. Uh, and here's what I would recommend stay in junior high school and go on to high school and if if it looks right for you go on to college and if you go to college I would recommend that you take international politics or international relations or you know you know asian studies any kind of studies a language you, you pretty much need a language to work for CIA and military is always good and so I took that letter and I slept with it under my pillow for a long time but I basically in the years to come I basically Focused on that plan. I mean, it went up and down. Of course, it wasn't a straight course. But, but whenever it got to the point where I had to make a decision, I made a decision according to the the, the Todorovich plan. So, you know, when I got out, when I so when I went to the university, I took uh, I had a double major. I I graduated with Asian studies and uh, and international relations. And I had been a, a exchange student to Taiwan for a year, so I had fluency in Mandarin Chinese, and I had also become a Green Beret, and in fact, this is my hat, the one I'm wearing here, I'm commemorating my unit, you know, here, this is a 19 Special Forces group, and uh, so at 25 years old, when I applied to CIA with that, you know, fa- having followed the Todorovic plan, they accepted me, and they said, come on in, you know, and so for the next 20 years, basically a little less than 20 years, I uh I was a clandestine service officer for CIA. Now back then clandestine service officers I mean the, the CIA was really the United States premier strategic intelligence agency and it was a global service. And if you were a case officer you worked overseas, you lived overseas, you spoke languages, you understood the culture, you understood the religions, you understood the politics of your country and neighboring countries and how it all fit in together. Because you had to, you know, and you're undercover, right? So I was under diplomatic cover. So when you go to, you know, parties and things, you got to at least be able to say, "Well, why is Kuala Lumpur named Kuala Lumpur?" Or you know that sort of thing. I mean, it's you know, you got to have you got to have the the ability to to talk to talk. So you know, so I I went and I served in Asia, Southeast Asia, Europe. Uh, in fact when i was in asia i was assigned to china i was the chief of base in in china so you know i got all this great experience and then uh, you know about 1995 now 1991 the soviet union went belly up and the soviet union was really the whole reason for the cia to be created you know we were we needed to you know to watch the soviets they were a new nuclear power, just like us. They were being expansionists, and they were going everywhere around the world. So CIA case officers had to be everywhere around the world to trying to figure out what they were doing. So, you know, I was doing that, and then I was in Tokyo Station 1995. And by that time, CIA was already starting to go down. I mean, it was downsizing. It was closing stations and bases because it had lost its primary mission, right? So, you know, they were getting rid of people and, and I'm in Tokyo station. I want to go stay out overseas as long as possible. All of us did. Nobody ever wanted to go back to headquarters because that was the kiss of death. I mean, if you're going to be a spy and recruiting foreign spies and other governments, you got to be overseas to recruit those foreign spies. So you don't want to come back to the United States and wander the halls of you know headquarters. I mean, that's not going to do anything for you. So, you know, I'm putting in for my next assignment and they keep saying, nah, just come back to headquarters. And I'm going, no, I understand that guys. But, uh, look, you know, what place in the world do does nobody want to go send me there? And they come back and say, nah, you know, you know, just come back to headquarters. And I'd say, well, look, uh, instead of coming back to headquarters, send me to the farm, you know, our training facility and I'll teach other case officers at the farm. They said, no, look, here's the deal. We're offering early out bonuses. We want you guys to leave, so we'll offer you a lot of money, and you can take your, you know, can take the, the bonus and take what you've, you know, paid into retirement, and have a heck of a nest egg and go out and start some new career. We really kind of want you guys to leave, so take the money and go. Well, I kept trying, you know, to stay overseas, and they just said no. So I said, okay, give me the money, and I went and started my own thing. So I went and started my own, you know, private intelligence business for a while, and then I got an invitation from some ex Navy SEALs who had a company down in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Went down and worked for them for a couple of years, and then and then when two thousand one struck, you know, uh, you know, I started teaching counterterrorism, and I started teaching counterterrorism at CIA and FBI, and to the military and a military up in Canada, and you know police intelligence officers, 10,000, you know, as you mentioned in, the, in your, uh, your opening remarks. So, you know, that's pretty much what I did until 2009. And then, you know, I got a, a an in to Sheikh Saad al Sakr al-Kasimi, uh, who was uh, at the time, he was a crown prince of Ras al-Hema, and now he's ruler of Ras al-Hema. And, I went over to talk to him and I said, you know, your highness, we got all these young Americans and the only understanding of Islam or Muslims that these young Americans going over to Iraq and Afghanistan have is Osama bin Laden. And that's not the way to do it. Right. I mean, we, we ought to have them know something about Islam and Muslims and tribes and, and the, the culture and all this sort of thing before they even land in Afghanistan or or." For, uh Iraq and he said absolutely so I did that for a year and then uh you know and then came back and I was continuing to, to train and then President Obama said you know to the government he said you guys can no longer string the words Islam and Muslim together in a sentence and we're just not gonna have it. you know no more of that so since my funding was off from the Department of Homeland Security DHS uh they you know uh, the police departments I was teaching at. You know, came to me and said, "Look, man, you know, Brian, we love your training. I mean, it's great, I and mean, we, we we really want it, but we can't, man, because if if we do that, the government's going to cut us off of all DHS funds. If we get a lot of, we have quite a few programs from DHS. So if we take your training, we're going to get all this other stuff cut out, and we can't we can't do it. So sorry." Well, right about that time, I got a phone call and I got an invitation to go to Afghanistan to be a mentor in, uh, you know, in Kabul to a bunch of uh, national police intelligence officers. So I went there for a year and a half, and and uh, I mentioned this uh, earlier. I mean, do you know Green on Blue Killings, Her- Hervoye?
0: No, the I green don't.
1: On, well, the Green on Blue Killings were, you know, it's 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 a military jargon, you know. If we're teaching our students, the green on blue killings was when the green, the guys that we were training, would turn on us and kill us, right? So while I was there, I was there from the summer of 2011 to late December 2012, and the green on blue killings began at that point and peaked at that point, you know, and never went below that. I mean, it was like that. So it wasn't necessarily the best time to be there, and I was in close confines with my afghan uh, mentees so you know i went through that that was a great experience and uh and then you know i started you know g- going back to do training whatever i could now what i do is i basically re- research every day and i've been writing articles for several years and you know now i'm doing a whole new adventure coming on programs like yours and uh, it's, so far it's been great so that's that's basically my background
0: Yeah, so you've seen uh, a lot, and 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 by the way, you know when I finished my history degree uh, back in 2004, I think in in Illinois, I I believe I did actually apply uh, for a job at the CIA. I never got a response uh, because I'm a I'm a dual national. I'm also a Croatian uh, citizen, and I'm fluent in uh, Croatian. And I actually found a job the CIA was posting where they they wanted a media person to monitor the Croatian. news uh and, you know i applied and i never got a response but that that was uh, i did peace corps after that and so um but anyways uh to, to then maybe get your thoughts uh, as you mentioned on your website you know the, the problems america is facing from you know there are economic problems there are, there are domestic issues uh, threatening you know the very state uh uh of things in America, uh, foreign adversaries, right. This, this, this coming together of China, Russia, uh, Iran, oh, North yeah. Korea. I mean, j- just to highlight this times of Israel published, uh, yesterday an article titled Russia, China, Iran are ba- backing Hamas, uh, online to undercut Israel and the U S. So, you know, we, we see a clear new, new great game, so to speak, yeah. or, gr- or great power conflict yeah. between The American, uh, yeah, between the American Empire and and then the East, which has already formed um, an alliance, and we're at a very dangerous crossroads. I think I call it a hundred-year storm, whose characteristics include, you know, financial collapse. I had on Colonel McGregor uh, on the podcast a few few months back. He said America is facing. Uh, what did he say I'm um, uh, financial Armageddon. Uh, we've got budding authoritarianism including even in you know western countries and a third world sure. war w- w- sure. with you know m- multiple fronts opening up of this third world war as we speak and so how would you sort of um explain the the, the state of uh, you know the, the grand global chessboard so, so to speak
1: yeah no that's a great that's a fantastic question and i wrote a paper about this uh, a year ago in fact, uh, I was sort of like the first one to coin the phrase, the new axis of evil. And so a year ago, you know, I mean, like I say, I've been, I've been an intelligence officer all my life, right? And I've served in Asia and Europe. And so I've been watching all of these developments my whole life. And I was in the Cold War. So I can recognize a Cold War when I see it, you know. So I wrote this paper a year ago, and it was it was titled, The New Axis of Evil, colon, the anti-American military bloc led by China, and I sent this to everybody. I mean, all the chiefs of all the committees in Congress, and I sent it to CIA and DIA and ODNI, and you know everybody. I mean, I sent all this out. And then I got it in my Twitter account, sent it out to everybody I could think of, you know, special uh, congressmen and their and their staffs, you know, all that sort of thing. And and the problem is that you know I I don't know. I mean, politicians you know tend to. Not want to acknowledge things, because once you acknowledge something, you've got to do something about it, right? If you name the problem, you can't just walk away, although we tend to do that a lot, too. But, you know, so everybody, even today, a lot of people in the foreign policy arena think that we're dealing with China over here and and Iran over here and North Korea and Russia as separate problems, but they're not separate problems. They're all one problem. You know, it's the new axis of evil. And, you know, they all, they themselves, they themselves say this. They describe themselves as, they have bonded. You know, they are the, they're they they are not an alliance in the sense of, you know, doing all the paperwork and putting the seals of governments and stuff on it. But for all intents and purposes, they are a military, anti-American military alliance. And so why would they do that? You know, what's the whole deal? Well, the deal is that, you know, any one country, if it contests the United States, we can put up a pretty good defense. But if we're up against four and they, they go through a, a lot of effort to split up our intelligence, our military, our political, our diplomatic uh, attention and resources and spread it to the four winds. Right. So, I mean, you see it, you know, you see it happening, you know, almost every day in the news. I mean, North Korea will sound off fire missiles over Japan and we'll send a couple of bear, you know, carrier groups up there to, to quell the situation. You know, all of a sudden, then uh, Iran will do something. We'll send a whole bunch of, you know, battle groups over there. Of course, then we got the everyday problem of Ukraine and we're drawing down our own, uh, you know, our, our own ammunition and artillery shells and all this sort of thing, plus our attention. And now our attention is getting separated and we're having political problems within our own ranks over whether or not we should continue to do anything with uh, with Ukraine and continue to supply them with the the uh, material that they need. And, of course, China looms over this whole thing. I mean, China is the number two economy. You know, it's, you know. It's just uh, it's a it's a gargantuan monster, and nobody wants to go against China because they all trade with China, and their economies pretty much depend on it. So we've got this you know this new axis of evil, and to bring it back to CIA, the problem that I've got is that you know CIA isn't really up to the task anymore. CIA is kind of broken. So how is it broken? Well. For the whole time that the Soviet Union was there, we were doing great. You know, we're, we were a global strategic service. We had case officers everywhere, language capability, all that sort of thing. Focused on the Russians, the KGB, you know, all all this. And then all of a sudden the Soviet Union went belly up. And for 10 years, for 10 years, CIA didn't have a primary mission. You know, I mean, his primary mission was the Soviet Union. Now the Soviet Union has gone. There was a, a famous uh, uh, congressman by the name of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And at the time, Daniel Daniel Patrick Moynihan went to James Woolsey, who was the CIA director at the time, and said, hey, Jim, do we even need you guys anymore? I mean, do we need a CIA? I mean, you guys won. Way to go. You know, the Cold War. Way to go. But, you know, it's the end of history, basically. We're never going to do that again. So, you know, why do we even need a CIA? And and the politicians at that particular point in time all felt the same way. And they wanted to they wanted to benefit from the peace dividend. You know, they wanted all the money that was going to intelligence so that they could spend it in their own constituencies, you know, and that sort of thing. So CIA was, was drifting without a uh, without a, a, a main mission for ten years until all of a sudden on um, In 2011, you know, September, you know, September 11th, boom, they got a new mission and it was counterterrorism. But they didn't add it as one of its many missions. They basically did away with all the other missions and just focused on counterterrorism as their primary mission. And so for 20 years, for 20 years, they did nothing but counterterrorism. They forgot about the world. You know, and and see, bureaucratically, you have to understand. Bureaucratically, when a when an institution does that, is it's got to, everything goes that way, right? So they have to have a budget. Well, their budget wasn't for China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. It was for counterterrorism. Their congressional. Li- liaisons and the committees that they dealt with were all counterterrorism. The intelligence committees were all focused on counterterrorism. The people that they hired were all counterterrorism, you know, qualified. They weren't going and getting guys like Brian Fairchild, you know, writing letters when they were 14. Now they're going to, you know, SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force and the 70th, 75th Ranger Regiment and Marine Recon and they're taking guys and hiring them right out of the teams and putting them in CIA. So So, in you know, CIA didn't even create its own service. It just went and grabbed the military guys who already had the expertise, and they put them to work in the Special Activities Division and Special Activities Group. So they were doing nothing but focused on on uh, on counterterrorism. And while they were doing that, the world caught up with us, and then a lot of parts of the world started passing us up. Now, a great example is China, and and China, I mean. While China was expanding, while it was building its military, a lot of people understood this. I mean, I was writing papers about it. Other people were writing papers about it. But the government as an entity didn't acknowledge it until 2018, way, way late. And so during that time, you've got, you know, China starting in 2014, starting to build its man-made islands in the South China Sea. And people, you know, like me and other guys, would you write these papers and say, "Hey, hey, look, look at what China's doing." I mean, come on, look, we got. Why aren't we doing anything about this? To the point where Admiral Davidson, who was the chief of uh, Indo-Indo-Pacific Command at the time, he was testifying before Congress in 2018. So just four years later, they started the islands in 2014. Now it's 2018, and Admiral Davidson gets up before Congress and says, "Fellas." For all intents and purposes, China controls the South China Sea short of war with the United States. Well, that's a heck of an indictment, you know, and and the indictment is, well, CIA, where have you been? How how come nobody's talking about this? How come nobody's being outraged and throwing their hands up and going, hey, there's a problem. There's a problem. we got to do something. They still didn't. So. You know, as as China goes along, they develop hypersonic missiles and we don't have any hypersonic missiles. And for your audience. A hypersonic missile is not a typical missile. I mean, it can be it can be launched from aircraft, from submarines, from land base. And it doesn't go in an arc like this so that you can shoot it down easily. It goes around things and up and down and, 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 you know, at at more than Mach 5. Right. So Mach five is the sound, you know, the speed of sound. And there you know, some of these are going at Mach 18, Mach 20. And our air defenses cannot defend against them and they have distance. So if you're going up against China around the Taiwan area, we really can't. We, we don't. We're outgunned, outmanned and, and out technology,
0: you know. So, I, yeah, I just wanted to add to that. By the way, you mentioned earlier seals and I forgot to mention, uh, uh, also, back in the day, I was a huge fan of Dick Marchinko, the rogue warrior. He passed uh, some years yeah. back. But um, yeah. earlier this year, I was at an event, a conference where General Robert Spaulding spoke. And I briefly um, uh, met him as, as as we were walking down the hall and Colonel Mills uh, as well. I think John Mills. And, and they both spoke uh, on this issue, China. And Spaulding said that and he was also stationed in, in, in China in the 2000 teens. And yeah. he basically said, just as you're saying now, um, that there's nothing we can do for Taiwan. Like basically, the best we can do is evacuate the Taiwanese. Um, we can't, uh, you know, project the power, the supply lines. Like basically, China has the upper hand.
1: Yeah, I see. Here's the thing about that, Perboyre. That you know, you've got the 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 coast of China. It just has, you know, thousands and thousands of missiles. Right. And these missiles are, you know, we'll give you an example of how bad it is. In 2021, the U.S. Army wrote an official paper. And in that official paper, they said People's Liberation Army Rocket Force is the biggest and most diverse rocket force in the world. And they have so many anti-ship missiles. So just signaling out that one kind, not. Not nuclear and all, the, just the anti ship missile that we would have to contend with if we were going to try to defend Taiwan. They have so many anti ship missiles that they can hit every US surface combatant in the South China Sea to the extent that all those surface combatants have used all of their anti missile defense capabilities and still have many left over to continue pounding those boats. So, like right now, you see, uh, because of the Israel situation and us going head to head, and worried about maybe getting into it with Iran, we've got all kinds of military assets in the Middle East because we can actually do something there. But if you notice that when China encircled Taiwan three different times so far, well, even more by from now, by now, our our uh, carrier battle groups stood off way way away because they can't get any closer. Because if they get any closer, China can sink them with hypersonic missiles before they can get in range to launch their own attacks. So this isn't conspiracy theory or anything. This is, this is the actual fact. And, uh, and, you know, so General Milley, who was up until just recently, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, well, he said two things. One, going back to my point about how everybody was focused on counterterrorism, including the military, all the military services are in the same boat. But he said, you know, we have mortgaged our future to counterterrorism. That's why we're having to, you know, rebuild and and refocus the services from, you know, counterterrorism to -to peer-to-peer combat, you know, and that sort of thing. And he also said, you know, China's got this, hypersonic missile capability that we can't defend against we don't have defenses against it. now we're going to build those defenses and we're working hard you know but right now china's got us you know they've got the the capability and we don't have the capability and that capability can hit guam and can hit okinawa and all of those places so all the war games you know her boy say if we got into it with china over taiwan depends on who you talk to most of the time, the majority of people say, "Well, there are those those war games where we don't even you know we just get smeared, but there are some war games where we actually prevent China from actually taking over Taiwan, but at a price that is so dear that we couldn't you know survive it I mean it's you know they would sink the you know most of the Japanese surface fleet they would sink you know most of our ships in the area, they would sink two aircraft carriers of ours. You know, and all the thousands of of, of men that are on those ships just to maybe prevent Taiwan. I mean, China from taking Taiwan. But then we talked about the new axis of evil. So, see, here's the thing that that people have to get into their heads, you know, citizens as well as politicians, as well as military joint staff guys, is that you can't talk about going to war with China as a separate sort of thing because there's a new axis of evil. Right, So if we go to war with China over Taiwan, what do you think Russia and North Korea and Iran are going to do? Are they going to sit back and go, that's a separate thing. You guys go ahead and do your thing. I mean, no problem. We'll just watch. No, it's a new axis of evil. They're they're against us. They're in agreement that they want to remove the United States as the hegemon of the world and replace the United States. And they would be in the fight, too. And, And then after that fight we would be so vulnerable we wouldn't be able to uh, expand or ex- or or you know extend our power anywhere could, we'd have to go back and lick our wounds and try to rebuild and we don't have the ability to rebuild go ahead and R- in, in
0: that situation you know what of our hmm. uh, allies and alliance system you know the whole nato and then you know australia you know it, we are seeing moves sort of in preparation of what you've been discussing us trying to establish uh bases and and you know in australia uh and and elsewhere but what w- in this situation w- you know we've also got a- allies no
1: oh yeah sure but the the problem is that you know so you've seen you know biden he's gone over he, you know, he's trying as hard as he can to to get you know japan and south korea you know to to join with us and and try to get our alliances going to vietnam and trying to drive a wedge between you know the vietnam and uh, and china The problem is, is that to what extent are those folks willing to go to war with China to defend what we regard as our national vital interests, right? So polls in Japan, for instance, polls in Japan has shown that the, the Japanese population is not willing to go to war over Taiwan, you know, and the Philippines wants us to aid them you know, because China is encroaching on their fishing rights and taking over their islands and all that sort of thing. And we say, yeah, we've got a treaty, a 1951 treaty with the Philippines that says that we will help defend the Philippines if there's an armed attack against the Philippine, you know, vessel. The problem is that so far, China hasn't, you know, launched an armed attack. I mean, they they blockade, they coerced they use water cannon but they haven't fired a shot so so as long as that doesn't happen we're not going to go to their defense and if we did go to their defense it just might be a a shortened way of getting back getting into that war around taiwan that would be so you know that would decimate us so you know there are problems there but yes we 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 got to work the alliances and and really what we've got to do i mean there's lots of problems your boy and and you know but there are ways out of it, but there are no easy, simple, quick ways out of it. The ways out of it is, first of all, we have to build a strategy. And lo and behold, I mean, maybe you're, you're, you know, your audience doesn't realize this, but there is no grand strategy. United States has no grand strategy at all. Now, there are some military contingency plans. If something happens in this theater, they can pull out a file and go, well, our contingency is do, to do this. But as far as a grand strategy for the world and the U.S. place in it, there isn't any. So what my counsel would be to anybody who's going to become president next time around is that, they, you know, they've got to sit people down, both from outside the government and inside the government, the best experts they can find, and say, "Okay, folks, here's the deal. What are our national vital interests in the world? And I'm not talking, I mean, I'm talking about you guys have to winnow it down. What are the basic things that we can't do without if we're going to continue as the United States of America and have a global position? So you tell me what those are. And, and I'm telling you right now, don't give me 15 different things. I want to know what the basic ones are. So then they come up with that. And then you go, OK, well, if those are our national vital interests. And I, I agree with you now. I've read the briefs the, the and stuff. OK, you've done a good job we have the the capabilities to protect and project those national interests and if not then what are your recommendations as to how we build up those capabilities so it's going to take you know some stepping back and not reacting like we do all the time see all the stuff that we're that you see in the news right now is just reaction you know we when's the, when's the last time you've heard a president or a secretary of state you know sit down before the country and say you know, my fellow Americans, here are the problems. You know, we face these powers, and these powers are going to do this and this and this, and and we only have these many ca- capabilities, so we've got to do this, this, and this. It, it doesn't happen, right? It, there is none. So what happens is all of a sudden, you know, North Korea sounds off, we send some stuff up there. You know, uh, Iran sounds off, we send stuff there. But we're all knee-jerk reactions. You know, we're not. It's not because of a focused plan. And now we're all separate right and we only have limited resources i mean i don't know if your audience doesn't know this this is probably blow blow their socks off but the chinese have the largest navy in the world they have they have 370 surface fleet combatants we have 296 and now we're separating those 296 all over the world and so what happens if now with all these you know all these forces all over the world If China goes, okay, well, you know, the U.S. has 48 some odd ships and two aircraft carriers over in the Middle East, others on the way. And they've got other stuff up in North Korea and they got other stuff working in, in Ukraine and they're split up politically. They're a polarized nation. What if I just walk over and take over Taiwan now? What will the United States do? What is the plan? You know, how do you react with what forces, you know, with what budget? You know, where do the forces come from? Do we break off stuff from Iran and the the problems in the Middle East and bring those forces to that That's the kind of plan you need. Now, to further make this, you know, even worse, is that CIA is just now getting back into the espionage game. So there's a big difference, Roy, between counterterrorism and espionage. Counterterrorism, you've got the skills of SEAL Team Six, you know, Delta Force, all of those guys that CIA has brought over into their special operations. So you got that pretty much covered. But when it comes to espionage, you need language qualified people who are going to go overseas, live there for a long time, understand the nations and the countries, the the regions that they're in, and get experience and recruit sources within those governments. Right? That's what a spy does. That's a whole different thing. Now you have a different kind of counterintelligence threat. Right, Because if you're running around doing this stuff, well, the counterintelligence services of those countries are looking for you doing that stuff. And CIA, yeah, it's getting back in the game, but it's kind of screwing up, which is why I wrote the book. I mean, my book is called The Hidden. And what that refers to, the title refers to remaining hidden below China's radar. So are we doing that now? No, because what CIA is doing is basically they have a cookie-cutter approach. They've always had a cookie-cutter approach where they hire guys like Brian Fairchild who's done things that he's done and he's qualified. They put you on the, on the treadmill and you start going through the training and you find out what CIA is and what CIA does and what the offices in CIA are and how you write for CIA and all of this stuff. And, and then at a certain, certain point, they send you to the farm and you get trained in clandestine trade tradecraft and, and all of that. And then they put you overseas In official cover. But you can't work in official cover anymore because of the surveillance technology that exists today. That was great back in the old Cold War, but it doesn't work today. Let me give you just one example. There's this, you've heard of Whammy, right? You've heard of wide area motion imagery. I mean, it's a silly sounding technology. It's like, you know, people are going to go, wow, that Fairchild's crazy talking about whammy stuff. And, you know, let's forget about that. But whammy is a real solid technology. And it's called wide area motion imagery. Also called persistent surveillance and by other names. Now, we developed it. We, the United States government, developed it back in Afghanistan. Like 2011, it was secret back then. Now it's not. Now, if your listeners go to uh, Google and, and Google Whammy, they'll find, you know, Fortune 500 companies that are d- developing this technology and selling, it. not just to the United States, but to whoever wants. It. So what is it? A Whammy technology isn't a big, you know, room filled bunch of equipment. It's a small package. It can fit on a Cessna aircraft. And if, my hand here is Washington, D.C. You get that package in a Cessna aircraft, and it's got a big cone. When they record, the cone, you know, covers a large segment of that city. And so it just circles the city with that cone, constantly recording all movement in the city, all movement, I mean, all movement. So if you come out on your stoop to get your daily newspaper, you're recorded. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to do anything to you. They're not going to ever know about you unless you become a target. And because this is all digital, I mean, just think of consecutive digital films from your phone. You can go back and look at them anytime, right? Well, this is the same sort of thing, only, you know, they've got big screens and you have analysts and you look at the city. And like right now, if I get a report from the police that there's a a murder being done at you know 14th and 5th Street or whatever, you know. I, as an analyst, can go right there, zoom in, see the murder occurring, and then watch the perpetrators go and wherever they go in that city, I can follow them. Not only that, but I can go back in time. and I can watch when they came to the to to, to, to murder the guy and where they came from and where they live and where they've moved, and all this sort of thing. So what we do, and what CIA is doing now with these new espionage guys, espionage uh, officers, is, you know, we go to the embassies, and that's sticking a, uh, sticking a flag in the sand, and it's like having those big, you know, fingers at football games going, here's where we are, here, here's where, you want to know where the spies are? Here we are, right here. You know, now maybe, uh, you know, a couple guys have been separated, and they're working over in a, you know, a, a Fortune 500 company or anything, but, you know, in most places overseas, the number of American and foreign residents are relatively small. And this technology can record, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at a time, right? So, I mean, the those, those numbers of, well, we got 265 people working for this Fortune 500 company, and we got 225 people in the entire U.S. Embassy and and so many in the consulate, you know, this sort of thing. That that coverage takes care of all that. So if, if Brian Fairchild comes out of the embassy, as soon as I come out of the embassy after having waved the flag saying, I'm right here, that technology latches on to me and never leaves. So you can't be a, a, a case officer anymore and have official cover because you're just, you're just guiding them to wherever your assets are. And here's a, the key thing to remember. I mean, so people might be saying, so what? Okay, so some spy gets caught. But that's not the deal because an espionage, your whole point of espionage is to get secrets about that government or whatever government you're penetrating That will allow your policymakers to make correct policy to counter those threats. And and an espionage officer wants to recruit a source, maybe a 25-year-old kid in the government, and run him as a spy for his entire career. But what does a counterintelligence service do if the counterintelligence service decides he's going to follow Brian Fairchild? Well, they follow him. They see he's dealing with Kalumba over in Zambia right so one night they knock on the door kalumba answers and they say hey kalumba how are you we're from the national intelligence agency and we just like to have some talk you know a little talk with you right there kalumba's scared to death because in most countries the national intelligence services are not kind and gentle so they sit down and kalumba's nervous he's you know oh yes yes sir would you like some tea sir you know this sort of thing and the guy says hey look kalumba let me just cut to the chase uh Hey, you know this American diplomat by the name of Brian Fairchild, right? And Kalumba goes, Well, yes, yes, I do, sir. Yes, a good man, good man. I like him. And, well, Kalumba, I like him too. I've met him at diplomatic functions. He's a nice guy. You know, he's a spy, though, right? Oh man, Kalumba's eyes get this big and he's like, What? Oh, no, sir. No, sir. I, no, you know, and so he says, Oh, no problem. No problem. I, I will leave. I will never talk to him again. The National Intelligence Service guy says, no, Kalumba, no, that's not what we want you to do. We want you to continue to see him. And as he continues to meet with you, sooner or later, he's going to pitch you as a spy. He's going to recruit you as a spy. We want you to accept. I mean, maybe drag your feet a little bit, make it look good, but we want you to accept. And then when he starts giving requirements to you about what's the prime minister thinking, what's that real policy about, what is the military really doing with China? We're going to feed you information to give to him. And it'll all be false information, and he'll give it to his people, probably at some point he's going to get a medal for having so much great intelligence and what a, a great source like you. and, and he's going to all the, the CIA will give all that great information after it's analyzed and pass it to the policymakers, and the policymakers will be making policy regarding our country you know completely erroneous, you know terrible policy because it won't be based on anything true. and that's, that's why it's important. That you have to have the right kind of cover. You know, I mean you watch TV and you know it's like spy versus spy, and nobody really thinks about what, what it's all about, but this is what it's all about. You can't you can't recruit secret sources if everybody knows who you are and follows you and you know figures out who your secret sources are. So the way to overcome that, may I go into this new okay. The the, the, the way to overcome that is instead of this cookie cutter approach that CIA uses. One, one size fits all. You can't do it like that. Not anymore. So what you've got to do is you've got to basically take the approach of a, of a sports talent scout. And what do sports talent scouts do? Well, they go to, they don't announce themselves. They don't say, Hey, I'm a really important you know scout for the NFL. They just go to football games, right? They go to football games and junior high school guys, high school, you know, junior college, college, they just go everywhere they can find talent. They, they, pick out a couple of people in junior high school and say, well, I'll watch those guys a little later and see how they how they mature. And they look at the high school players and they go, man, now that guy's got an arm. And he's got some brains about him too. And But you've got these guys all over the country, right, looking for talent. And then at some point, you know, they do all their work, all the tedious work, all the – identifying potential assets and finding out about them, maybe even talking to the kid on the sidelines every once in a while, never saying that he's a talent scout. Just say, hey, way to go, Jimmy. You know, hey, what were you thinking when you did that play? You know, that kind of thing. Then they sit around in a boardroom and they start going, well, I've got Jimmy. The other guy says, well, I've got Chad. Well, I've got this guy. I've got that. Well, which guys are the best? Well, we're going to choose Jimmy. And then they go to Jimmy and say, hey, Jimmy, how would you like to be an NFL star? And they recruit him, right? Well, that's the way we've got to recruit American intelligence officers now. And what do those sports guys have already? They have talent. They have experience. They're on the field. They already know the job. Now they've developed your skill to a point where the NFL wants them. They're, well, what a heck of an asset. So you've got to find the same kind of guys overseas, same kind of Americans. Americans who live overseas or have their businesses overseas, have uh have the you know, existing networks, contacts with the government have already been looked at a number of times by the counterintelligence services. And those counterintelligence services say, there's nothing there. This guy is not a threat. No problem. Let's move on to what, what the threats are. So that's kind of where we need to go because of how the world is falling apart and the new axis of evil and things. But you know so far, CIA is still you know, focused on the old approach. And, and you know, that's kind of where we are in the world. So, in the book, and so the hidden, the, you know, the guys got to stay hidden below the uh, the radar, right? So he's in Zambia now. It's a novel, right? So not everything is factual and true, but I try to keep it as factual and true as possible through the whole story. You know, there are going to be murders and things that are, you know, part of the action that didn't, you know, actually occur. But you know, but it's basically. All the technology in the book is real, and all the main aspects of the uh, cover and operations is true. So my hero, he lives in Zambia. He's, uh, his name is Griff Harkin. He's out of Montana. He's been in Zambia for a while trying to sell Montana beef. And one day he's walking af- after having tried to sell Montana beef to the Chinese that are in Zambia. So he's got contact with Chinese, too. He's walking down a, the road and in an alleyway, a woman is being raped, and he saves her life. And he 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 gets rid of the bad guy, and it turns out that she happens to be the the, the favorite daughter of the the Mukulu, and the Chidi Mukulu is the chief the, the chief of all chiefs of the Bemba tribe in Zambia. Now that's true. That's a natural fact. Uh, and th- so the Bemba are a huge tribe, and there's conflict between the bemba tribe and the government so right there you've got the dynamic you need if you're a spy right because you you want to know what the bemba know about the the government what you know what the bemba know about the government in china and all this sort of thing so now you've got it already he's already got you know his access to secret information without ever having to go to a government office right so he that's how he works the deal and and like i say you know the counterintelligence services look at him and go well you know, he's no threat, so we don't have to worry about it. Now, if he becomes a threat, or boy, like like we were talking about before, once he gets up on their radar, then he's toast, right? Because they can go back and they can follow Griff the last six months or however long they've got their digital stuff stored for. They can go back and find out everything he's done, every place he's been, every person he's talked to. I mean, so, you know, once you get above that radar and they've caught you, you're, you're in, in bad shape. So that kind of brings it, you know, all together. And if any of your any of your folks are interested, you can just go to to hidden chapters uh, dot com and read the the summary, the prologue, and the first two chapters, which basically talks about all the stuff that we're talking about here. So you know, po- totally free. If you just want to look and you know see see what it's about and see you know what this uh, this whole dynamic is. You can just go to that website and you get the free chapters so that's kind of you know
0: what you're you're discussing sort of reminds me i spent three years in kazakhstan working for nur sultan nazarbayev uh, his school and um you know they were also they were suspicious about me because i've got three passports including a u.s uh and i had actually met with some of the kazakh a security but I, one of the reasons that sparked that was because I was actually warning them of, of foreign intervention in Kazakhstan so I was kind of trying to be like a you know a good um foreign national, say hey I don't think this is in the best interests of Kazakhstan yeah, and, a warning. Um, yeah. but they, they yeah. don't know who I am so they've got right. this, they're like this guy's got three passports uh what you know what's going on and so the, the that was kind of it's kind of related to what you're Uh, talking about i'm just curious going forward we're just going to be seeing more and more insane amounts of surveillance in all countries you know they got ai and and digital surveillance and and geolocation phones i mean you you name it uh going forward isn't it going to be very difficult um to do this sort of thing
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean right now unless you do The kind of cover that i was just talking about that specialized you know sports sports talent scout type of you know you know recruitment of americans overseas who already have existing networks and things you're kind of screwed up you know i mean i mean if you just think of the technology and that's just one technology the whammy technology and that whammy technology can be put on on satellites back in 1975 You know, reports came out that our capabilities and, you know, I'm not giving away secrets here. I mean, it's all public now. This is Back in 1975, 1975, they said we had, you know, satellites that were so good that from space they could film the license plates of cars at CIA. Well, now you've got, you know, all these years later with really sophisticated technology, with this whammy technology and and technology that will even be better than whammy, you know, focused on what, you know, the key government institution. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to CIA or in in the area, but CIA is not a hidden, you know, hidden by any means, you know, or, or any, any slight, you know, thinking there's no way CIA is hidden. I mean, it's, it's between route 123 and the George Washington Parkway in Langley, Virginia, it's a forested area where it is, and the headquarters is plopped out right down. But, I mean, you can walk across that that whole boundary. I mean, all the way from 123 to George Washington Parkway in 10 minutes. I mean, it's not like it's a forested mountain area with secret snipers and stuff all around. It's just, you know, in a, in a suburban environment. Worse, they've got big signs that say CIA right here, you know, just like the embassies. You know, you want to know where the spies are? We're right here. And so, I mean, the fact that the concept that you can have cover if you go gone into CIA headquarters or any of the, you know, the national intelligence agencies or any of the satellite properties that they have and that you still have cover is boggles me. Right. The CIA is never going to say that. Right. Because CIA is a huge institution and it's got a lot of property. I mean, the, the headquarters itself is huge. They have two headquarters buildings. And they've got satellite property all around Northern Virginia and in Washington, D.C. And basically, you know, what they would have to say if they agreed with my points, they would have to say, yeah, well, yeah, Fairchild's kind of right. But, you know, we're obsolete. And no, in, no government institution known to anyone is ever going to look at, you know, their boss and say, I'm obsolete. Right. But well, I'm catching up. I'm obsolete, but I'm catching up, you know, because they don't need all that. If you're looking for, you know, when they go out and get talent for the SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force, they're not bringing people in 25 somethings, you know, and going through all that. They go to the existing forces and the existing SEAL teams and special forces groups and, you know, Ranger, you know, battalions and Marine recon, and they find the people who already have the talent, right? They're looking for the diamond in the rough. They're looking for a guy that can already do the job. And boy, this guy does it in stellar fashion. We want him on six, we want him in Delta. You know, that's how they do it. But CIA doesn't do that. CIA goes, okay, everybody apply. Okay, we're going to take you, we're going to take you, we're going to take you, put you on the cookie cutter, put you over an official, you know, official cover. And it's going to take you seven years. That's what we normally thought back when I was in to become a seasoned intelligence officer, one that, you know, isn't really learning and has been there and done that, wears a t-shirt. And now you can actually make a contribution. But you can't do that anymore. You need people that can hit the ground and have already have the capabilities, already have the networks. So you got to do this new thing, and uh, this, you know, and and CIA is not doing it. So you know, so we're in a world of hurt, and these enemies aren't going to go away. They're getting bolder and bolder. I mean, if you just look at the reports about how China and Russia are intercepting our aircraft and in, in airspace, that is. It's free to everybody, but China claims, you know, and they're not going to go away. They're going to continue to do that until either we go away or there's an incident and we go to war. So you got to have an intelligence service that actually can warn the policymakers and and tell them how things are shifting and where we have to focus. And right now, we just don't have it.
0: I guess my last question would be, do you see any inkling or or inkling or or sign from anywhere of anyone trying to attempt you make a step towards towards this or not really at all
1: well no because you know CIA got kind of caught by this whole thing right so i mean it was counterterrorism all the way and uh and then all of a sudden they took those china took over the south china sea and and then you know they circled taiwan and you know still china, CIA wasn't doing anything with china and the new director Burns, he went to his uh, his hearings uh, in Congress and uh, and said, "Oh man, they asked him right away. What are you going to do about China? Oh, China's on top of our priority. We're going to do. We're going to put resources and people and money and get language qualified officers." And then he went and became director. A year later, he said, "Oh, I'll show you how we're doing this. We've created a new China center in the clandestine service. That shows you that we're really focused on it." But then a year after that, you know, the deputy director had to go to the counterterrorism center. And because CIA was focused on counterterrorism for 20 years, the counterterrorism center is the locus of power in the clandestine service. They are the big honcho. They're the guys. Right. So the deputy director had to go to them and say, look, you guys, we're not just talking about this stuff. We really need to do this. This is what's happening in the world. China's not going away. We actually have to take resources away from you guys and put them on China. We really have to do this. You know, that was about a year ago. I wrote a paper and documented it. And from that point, I haven't seen that anything has really moved forward other than Burns once said, we're making inroads again into China. And China came out to just to humiliate him and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we caught this spy, this spy and this spy. And where were, they, where were they recruited? Well, Tokyo Station recruited this guy. The Italian Station recruited this guy. You know, official cover, right? The thing that I've been talking about. You can't do that anymore. And and uh, so, you know, I, I was just listening to a, a, a report by the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency Director, berry And he said it wasn't, you know, in, ni- in 2018, the National Security Strategy said counterterrorism is no longer the problem. China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, that's the problem. That's what we got to focus. 2018 wasn't until 2020, he said, that they really started, you know, turning around, trying to get into the strategic thing. And, you know, governments act slowly, man. I mean, you know, that's only, you know, three years ago. And in three years, you can't just snap your fingers and go, let's, let's have a, a really successful China program. They're still trying to figure out how to do that, where they need to go, what they need to do, what skills they need. You know, and so is CIA. They're trying to figure it out too. We've just done it, you know, too late. Now, sooner or later, we'll probably catch up and, and we'll we'll start giving them a go. Right, Right now, not happening.
0: Yeah. And by the time we catch up, there's a new threat. No, I'm just kidding. I think I think the the threat that we're that we're looking at right now, this is going to be going forward. um, Oh, absolutely. The the big issue. Uh, So we've covered a lot. Your book is The Hidden, a Griff Harkin novel. Uh, Anywhere books are sold, uh, it's it's available. And is your best website, point of contact, brianfairchildbooks.com?
1: Yeah, that's it. And if, if they go to that, if they go to that site, you know, the uh, freehiddenchapters.com, it takes them right to the website, but to my section of the website that has those those free chapters. So either way, they can
0: get to it. And I think in a, in a few months, if people follow my socials, uh, you will be joining me on my live TNT radio program. And there people be can my pleasure. Eat, yeah. And, and people can uh, call in and even ask you um, oh, uh, a, a question on that. Uh, and so, yeah, I highly re- recommend the book, The Hidden. The links are in the description, Brian com, And thank you for being with us on Geopolitics and Empire.
1: It's been my pleasure. It's been an honor meeting you and, and, and speaking with you. So thank you very much.
2: I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe,